All right, so Team Grace, I was looking at the liturgical calendar, and my goodness, ordinary time moved fast, didn't it? And we only have a few weeks left. So I was realistically looking at things and saying, what can we do? How can we make sure we get through everything we want to cover? Because we know for the National Eucharistic Revival, we've been walking through the different parts of the Mass, and then we've been walking through the part of the Catechism of the Catholic Church on the Eucharist, that second part of the Catechism, the part on Holy Communion and the sacrifice of the Mass. So I thought, how can we get through all this? And I had to realize we're just not going to be able to do it in the time we have left. But this is good, the good news is ordinary time stops, then we go to Advent, then we go to the Christmas season, and now we know that Christmas is a season, right? It's not just one day, it's a season. And then after the Christmas season, in mid-January, we come back to ordinary time. So what I'd like to do is we're gonna pick back up our series during ordinary time in mid-January. Today we're gonna to be able to finish the Liturgy of the Word in terms of the different parts of the Mass. I looked at the Catechism of the Catholic Church and we just finished a subsection and the next subsection is the Catechism explaining the different parts of the Mass. I thought, well, I don't want to start that and then have to wait until mid-January. So I'm pausing the Catechism. We're just going to pick up that subsection in mid-January as well. So we're going to wait to the next part of Ordinary Time and today, instead, today we're going to conclude the second part of the Mass. As we talk about the different parts of the Mass, I have to ask you, Team Grace, how many parts are there of the Mass? There you go. And what's the first part? The introductory rites. And the second part? Exactly, Liturgy of the Word. And that's the part where our homily series is at right now. We're going to conclude today the Liturgy of the Word. I want us to talk about that. Before I dive into the Liturgy of the Word and the different parts of the Mass, I think it's important that we ask again, why are we doing this? Okay, well, we're in a National Eucharistic Revival. Okay, good. Why do we need a National Eucharistic Revival? Well, that actually takes us to our first reading. Did you hear those heroes of our faith? You know, all they had to do was to eat a little bit of pork. If you had some bacon this morning at breakfast, you did more than what they refused to do, right? Or if you're going to have some pork chops tonight, that sounds good, doesn't it? <laughs> you're going to have some pork chops tonight, you've done more than what they were asked to do. But at that time, it was against the law of God. And someone could have just said, oh, come on, guys, just, just eat the pork. It's not a big deal. Come on. Why do you have to be like that? Huh? It's kind of like our early martyrs in the early church. All they had to do was take a little piece of incense and throw it in front of the statue of the emperor. That's all they had to do to save their lives. But they knew that little incense thrown in front of the emperor was an act of worship. That if they did that, they were acknowledging the divinity of the emperor and they would be denouncing Jesus Christ. So they wouldn't do it. And many of them died holy martyrs. Today we see seven sons die under the old law because they would not violate the law given by God. They held fast. You know, the rest of the story, which we don't hear today, is that before they killed the last one, they brought the mother in, thinking that the mother, of course, would tell her son to just apostatize and eat the, eat the pork, right? But you know, that holy woman stood there before her youngest son, having watched her other sons die, and she told that boy, do not embarrass our forebears. Do not embarrass your brothers. And do not violate the law of God. She called him to heroism. And not only did he die, but then they killed and martyred the mother as well. But this is a story that we should rejoice in. Because they model for us the fortitude and the strength of what it means to stand for the law of God and for the traditions of our forefathers. You see, dear friends, this is why here at Our Lady Grace, we emphasize our traditions. 
These aren't just passing things that we come up with. These are things that are important, essential. They guard and protect the sacredness of our faith. And they have been given to us by our forefathers and our foremothers, which is why they merit that we honor them, these traditions and customs. It's also one of the reasons why we are in a National Eucharistic Revival. Because when all the customs and traditions are stripped, what do we find? Doctrine itself begins to be assaulted. Doctrine itself is no longer believed. And so we find 70% of our own Catholics do not believe in the real presence of the Lord. How did that happen? Well, it was a slow process, but it began by chipping away and removing the traditions and the customs that surrounded the sacredness of those teachings, the sacredness of the Lord's presence among us. So with that understanding, we know we're in a National Eucharistic Revival. We also know that we are still under the summons of the Second Vatican Council that specifically called pastors to teach the faithful how to actively and consciously participate in the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass. That you are to know the traditions and the customs. You are to know the prayers and the movement of the Mass. You are to know what we are doing here and what the Holy Spirit is accomplishing here as he represents the passion, death, and resurrection of our Lord to us here today. So with that understanding, let's go then to the different parts of the Mass. So as we said, there are four parts. We've covered the introductory rites. And here we are in the Liturgy of the Word. We know, of course, we talked about that liturgical homily, and then we have the creed. And then right after the creed, we go into what are called the prayers of the faithful. They're also known as the general intercessions. Now, some of our older Catholics might say, I don't remember those before Vatican II. And that's because they weren't there. This is one of the things that the reform included into the Mass. And where do we get that from? Where did suddenly the church say, we need to have some prayers of the faithful right here at this part of the Mass? You know, it was actually born from a pious custom that the faithful would do. Now, this is in different parts of the universal church, and admittedly, it was not popular in the United States. But in many parts of the church, what would happen is the priest would go to approach the altar. So, you know, when I'm going to the altar and I go to prepare the bread and wine, I bow before I approach the altar. Used to be I had to walk down the steps, and I would bow. And as the priest would start to walk back up the steps, the faithful would call out petitions. Pray for my mother. Help me get a job. Make sure I can pay all my bills this month. Right? The faithful would just call out petitions. They were called bidding prayers. They would bid the priest as he was ascending to the altar of God to remember the petitions as he reached the altar of God. So those bidding prayers, that pious practice, the church formalized into the, into the prayers of the faithful, the general intercessions. Now again, that sounds peculiar to us, but let's see if we can do this. I want you in your own mind to think about one intention that's on your heart right now, something that's very important to you. And I'm going to count the three, and I want you to call out that petition. Let's do this. I'm going to do some bidding prayers here, right? Let's see. One, two, three. There you go, Team Grace. We just did some bidding prayers, right? And again, it was that pious custom that Mother Church formalized in the prayers of the faithful. So the prayers of the faithful are given to the local community under the pastor and the deacons, in order to draft and to write petitions that are important to the local community. Now, in particular, the deacon is entrusted with the writing of the petitions and the praying of the petitions. And you might say, well, why is that? Well, if you go to the Acts of the Apostles, we see that the order of deacon was established to assist the priest, but also to care for the vulnerable, the weak, and the sick. Look at our own deacon. You know, Deacon Doc goes to the care facilities of our parish. He's involved in our prison ministry. He sits on the board of hope in terms of social outreach to those in need. He is constantly out and about. 
And he comes back and he advises me and says, hey, Father, there are a lot of problems going on here. Hey, Father, there's an urgent need for gas cards uh, over at Hope. Or, or there's, there's this really bad problem going on in, in our care facility that you might need to, to look into and so on. So deacon's out and about fulfilling his vocation. So because of that, when it comes time to write the prayers of the faithful, he brings a unique perspective. Now, the pastor working with the deacon drafts the prayers of the faithful. But the deacon always reads them. If the deacon is present, he is the one who's supposed to read the prayers of the faithful. Now, you might say, well, gosh, that seems like it's a pretty wide open uh, license there, a lot of huge permission. And of course it is. It's one of the few parts of the Mass that we actually get the draft. I can't just sit here and say, gosh, you know, I think I'm just going to change the Eucharistic prayer today, huh? Or, you know what, I don't really like that second reading. I'm just going to change it today, right? I don't have the authority to do that. I know that might sound like a shock to some of you because some of my brother priests, they change the Mass all the time. But you know, I'm a servant to God and a servant to you when I offer the prayers of the church. I don't have the authority to change them. You know, if a priest changes the prayers of the Mass, it's actually a mortal sin because he violates the integrity of his own vocation and the trust given to him by the church. So we're not supposed to be changing things up here. But the prayers of the faithful Mother Church says, the local pastor and deacons can adjust the prayers. So we, again, we look at the needs, we discern the needs, and then we draft the prayers of the faithful. But with all that said, Mother Church does give us some guidance. Maybe you've already noticed a certain structure to the prayers of the faithful. Those of you who have been worshiping since the reform, I hope you've been able to recognize this. So let's point out a few things. First, the first petition is always for those who hold sacred authority. So we pray for the Holy Father, we pray for our bishop, Anyone who holds sacred authority. There's license and flexibility in terms of what we're praying for. So the Pope's traveling somewhere, we can pray for him. Or the bishop has some special project, and we can pray for that. There's very, it's a lot of flexibility. But the first petition has to be for those who hold sacred authority. And you know, dear friends, it's important that you understand why we pray for those in sacred authority. You know, our spiritual tradition tells us that the fastest way to get to hell is to be ordained to holy orders. Because once a person becomes a bishop, priest, or deacon, the stakes go up. And if that man doesn't fulfill his vocations, he's going to hell. You know, St. Francis of Assisi was ordained a deacon, and they wanted to ordain him a priest. He said no, because he was convinced if he had become a priest, he would not be able to be saved. So those who hold sacred authority, the stakes are high. And so we pray for them. We pray for them. That's the first petition. The second petition is always for those who hold civic authority or political authority. The president, the governor, they could be a local mayor. Again, there's a lot of flexibility, but it has to be for those who hold civic authority. So maybe there's this beloved mayor who's sick, we can pray for him. Or maybe there's some special involvement or project of the governor, we can pray for that. Again, flexibility, but the second petition always has to be for those in civic authority. After that, there are a few other petitions, and the church leaves it open. The church simply says, for those who are in need. And that's where the pastor and the deacon come in, and they discern, what are the needs? So here at Our Lady Grace, you, have, you may have noticed, we pray for those who are fighting cancer, those who are homebound or hospitalized. We pray for those who are battling emotional mental challenges. Today, we're going to pray for our veterans. So we rotate. We've prayed for Ukraine. We've prayed for those victims of natural disasters. So there's a rotation of petitions depending on local needs or the things that we care about and want to pray for. So today when we're praying the prayers of the faithful, you can listen and mark, oh yeah, that's that first petition. Oh, that's that second one. And then you can listen to the other petitions. What is it that my pastor and the parish deacon think are important for us to pray about on this Sunday? 
And that becomes the prayers of the faithful. Now, the last petition is usually for the dead or for the person for whom a mass is offered. Now, let me clarify something. Because sometimes you go to our sister parishes, and sometimes a pastor will not announce the intention of the mass. And sometimes people get upset about that. I had that mass offered for my loved one, and he didn't say the name. He doesn't have to. He doesn't have to. The priest is not bound to say the name of the person. It has to be publicized in a bulletin or on a website, but he doesn't have to announce it. In fact, there are some hardliners. <laughs> it surprises you that I'm not a hardliner, huh? <laughs> there are some hardliners, hardliners who will say they will not announce it because when we have a mass offered, it's not to hear our loved one's name. We have a mass offered so the graces in the mass can be applied to their souls. It doesn't matter whether the names are announced or not. So some priests will do that, and the church supports that decision. Here at Our Lady Grace, however, we follow the more broader tradition that the last petition is for the person for whom the Mass is offered. And we're happy to do that in order to announce the name of your loved one that the Mass is being offered for. So those are the prayers of the faithful. And I want to encourage you to realize those came from the pious practice of the faithful wanting to be involved in the Mass that you listen to the different petitions because these prayers are being offered on behalf of our community, on behalf of our parish. So as we offer these petitions, be united with them and join in your spirit with them. Now I should tell you that Mother Church asks that the prayers of the faithful be short. In fact, there really shouldn't be more than about six petitions. I know that might surprise you, right? Because you will go to some of our sister parishes, they have like 15 or 20, right? It's like, Mama Mia, it's not a litany, okay? Like tone it down, right? It's not supposed to overwhelm the faithful. Just a few petitions before we enter the liturgy of the Eucharist. So again, I ask that you be focused on that and that you consciously and actively participate in the Mass. All right, so those are the prayers of the faithful, and that's the liturgy of the Word. Now, as we talk about the liturgy of the Word, it's important that we have a clear understanding of how holy the liturgy of the Word is. Dear friends, the liturgy of the Word is not just a prelude to the liturgy of the Eucharist. It's not like it's just a preparation. No, the liturgy of the word has to be reclaimed. And honestly, as Catholics, we have really not treated the liturgy of the word well. In fact, oftentimes during the liturgy of the word, phones are going off, people are moving, people are going to the bathroom, children are crying, and, so, and the word of God is completely lost. God is literally speaking to his people and it's lost. We can do better. We need to guard the holiness of the proclamation of God's word. We need to protect the sacredness of the liturgy of the word. So when God is speaking, his people can hear him. We can listen to him and have a spirit of peace. So if we look at the liturgy of the word, what do we have? We have that first reading from the Old Testament outside of the Easter season. Then we have the Psalm. We know how important the Old Testament is. We talked about that. Then we have a second reading from one of the 21 apostolic letters of the New Testament. And we talked about how those apostolic letters, they tend to either apply something to our discipleship or explain something theologically. And I mentioned to you that when we hear the second reading, we should understand and, and ask ourselves, how does this reading apply to my life? There's an exhortation that's being given in the second reading. How does that apply to me in my state of affairs? Then after the second reading, we talk about the Alleluia verse. We stand up and we start praising God. Now, those of you who came to the All Souls Masses, did you notice that there was no Alleluia? Mother Church doesn't sing Alleluia when she's grieving or when she's in penance. So there's no Alleluia for Lent. By tradition, there's no Alleluia at funeral masses. 
And by tradition, there's no Alleluia for the All Souls Masses. Because Mother Church, again, does not sing the Alleluia when she's grieving or when she's in penance. So when we are able to sing the Alleluia, we want to sing it loud and boldly. We're praising God because we know that the Lord Jesus is about to speak the gospel to us. And of course, that leads us to the gospel proclamation. Team Grace, this is the most important part that I want to make sure you take away in our discussions on the liturgy of the Eucharist. That during the gospel proclamation, Jesus Christ is speaking. Jesus Christ is speaking. Proclaiming his gospel to you today. Just as he did 2,000 years ago. He is here, mystically, sacramentally present, proclaiming his gospel to you today. And we have to make sure we're attentive. We have to make sure we receive all the divine wisdom that he desires to give to us. And from that proclamation, we then go to the liturgical homily. And we know that the liturgical homily is not a time for fluff, right? Is the goal of the homily to make you feel good about yourself? Is the goal of the homily to give you warm fuzzies? The goal of the homily is to give you conviction. According to St. Paul, preaching gives what? One more time. Oh, good. Now you sound convicted. Okay, good. Okay, all right. The goal of the homily is to convict you, to help you to understand, to make sure you go deeper in your discipleship. It's easy to become lukewarm. In a secular society, it's easy for us to compromise. So we have to be convicted and reminded of our way of life as Christians. And then we know from the liturgical homily, we go to the creed. If the homilist has done his sacred duty, the faithful are ready to stand and to announce publicly, I believe. And then after the homily, we go into the prayers of the faithful. And we offer those petitions that are on our heart, that are important to our community, as we conclude the liturgy of the word. So far, so good? Do you know at the end of the liturgy of the word in the early church, all the baptized would be asked to leave? The bishop would stand up and say, if you're not baptized, you need to go. Because the unbaptized have no way of participating in the Eucharistic sacrifice. So they would just be asked to leave. Do you know in the restored order of Christian initiation of adults, that authority has been given back to pastors? Would you imagine that? If I were to say after the prayers of the faithful, if you're not baptized, see ya, huh? Right? Don't worry, it'll take us a couple of centuries to adjust, right? Mother Church recommends it takes us about 100 years to think about it and then about 200 years to start to actually do it, right? But the church is emphasizing the fact that the liturgy of the word is sacred, but you have to be baptized in order to participate in the liturgy of the Eucharist. To those of you who are baptized, I want you to, honor, to understand and to honor the authority, the spiritual power you've been given. Only the baptized can participate in the Eucharistic sacrifice because we are members of Christ. Okay, so that's the liturgy of the Eucharist. Excuse me, liturgy of the word. So far, so good? And now we know the second part of the Mass. How many parts of the Mass are there? What's the first part? Introductory rites. We've got that taken care of. What's the second part of the Mass? And we now understand that. Remember, dear friends, we are walking through this in in order to honor what we have received in order to help us to be consciously and actively involved in the participate, and to participate in the Holy Sacrifice. Now, this week we've concluded the Liturgy of the Word. And what I'd like to do next week is address many questions I've received about the Eucharist here at Our Lady of Grace. So some of those are from the past couple of months. Some of those are from the past several years. We've addressed each of them, but sometimes you have new parishioners or people were away or they weren't paying attention and so on. So... <laughs> 
we're going to address a few things. So sometimes people say, why don't we offer the precious blood? Why do we have so few extraordinary ministers? Why do we face the tabernacle for the sacrifice? Why do we have male-only servers here at Our Lady of Grace? I'm going to address each one of those. And if you have any questions, I encourage you to email me. So next week I can address all the questions we have so that you know exactly what we're doing and why we're doing it. So that's going to be next week. And then the following week, two weeks from now, we celebrate the feast of Christ the King. And that's the end of ordinary time. And I want us to talk about Christ being King, King of our hearts, King of our homes, King of our parish. And on the feast of Christ the King, I'm going to preach about one of our older brothers, St. Maximilian Kolbe. My goodness, such a powerful, powerful story. And I'm very happy to announce that we have his statue here at our parish church. You see there in the back, the statue that's covered? That's Maximilian Kolbe. We keep it covered to keep you in suspense, huh? You're not going to get to see him for another two weeks, right? But in two weeks, we'll unveil him and we'll tell the story of Maximilian Kolbe, how he can model for us what it means that Jesus Christ is the king of our lives. And then that team, Grace, will lead us into Advent. So far, so good. Team Grace, I want to encourage you to be active and to participate in the Eucharistic sacrifice. During the Liturgy of the Word, the sentiment that should be on your heart, the posture of your soul should be, Speak, Lord, your servant is listening. That you allow both a peace of heart and an openness of mind that you can hear what God desires to teach you. God is giving you divine wisdom either to help you for what, from what you have gone through or to prepare you for what is coming. So I encourage you to actively and participate in the Mass. And even though we are pausing the Catechism of the Catholic Church until mid-January, I want to encourage you to continue to read the Catechism, to study sacred doctrine, to understand what we have received in Jesus Christ, and to take your discipleship seriously. You have chosen to fan in the flame the graces of your baptism. You have chosen to follow the way of the Lord Jesus. I encourage you to do that actively and to dive into all the areas that Jesus has given to us. And first and foremost, to actively and consciously participate in this holy sacrifice.